0: Thank you.
1: Ich flexe. Ich flexe mich in die Stadt durch die Stadt. Ich flexe mir die Stadt zurecht. How can we collectively experience feminist spatial practices despite physical distance? Femark has designed this audio walk for times when physical distancing seems to be the only response to the spread of COVID-19. Begin by choosing a place you can see not far from you.
0: When you reach this place, start by standing still. Allow your mind to sense the weight of your body.
1: Where are your anchor points? Feel your muscles stabilizing you. Your arms and hands are in the most comfortable position, resting easily at your sides, folded gently in front of you or at your back.
0: In the stillness, remain relaxed and alert. As you begin moving, start at a slower pace than usual. Notice the sensations while you're moving. Heaviness, lightness, pressure, tingling,
1: energy, even pain if it's present. This panel of sensations creates a rhythm a dance of streams and flows while you move forward. Hanging Chaos The space in which we live can be seen through different perspectives. Space can be a place of meeting, a place of fear, a place of resistance. Environments are designed, but by and for whom? We understand listening as a critical practice, an active practice that develops and enhances awareness. Listening, understood as a point of departure for relational processes and a point of departure for conversation for yourself and with others. What can listening to other people's stories do with us? How can we bring a spatial and collective aspect to listening? Can listening be understood as a collective spatial practice? Through their different projects, Femark has learned that you don't need to build walls to create space. During our journey today, we will explore different perceptions of space, as well as practices of doing space collectively, showing alternative ways to occupy. Our journey today will be about an hour long. You'll be given a couple of instructions on how to move that you can follow if you like. Whenever there's no instruction
0: given, please move as you wish. Where are you now? Keep moving. Do you see people around you? Many of them are just a few. Maybe no one at all? Keep going. Who's visible on the streets? Who isn't?
2: Why? My name is Kerstin Honeit and I'm a visual artist and I mainly work with a moving image. Today I would like to talk about one of my projects, which is called Position One. It's an ongoing project. It started in 2007, or the context of the project started in 2007 when I moved house. I tried, in 2007, a very, for me, unique new technology out, which was called Google Earth, to discover my new surrounding. And when I used Google Earth more or less the very first time to discover a neighborhood, I made this observation that Google Earth seemed to work like the very beginning of photography, meaning that only things got captured that didn't move meaning people at the traffic light were captured, cars that were waiting at the traffic light were captured, and in this particular new neighborhood, sex workers that were waiting for clients. And this phenomena that really kind of stuck in my mind and I couldn't drop it, A, it kind of for me really exposed the presence of the sex workers, which um, maybe in a, in a daily life, not that present, because they were really totally empty streets and basically only occupied by sex workers. And the second time, as I define myself also as some kind of female body, it made me think about how I move around being read as a female body, not always, but uh, in general, um, in urban space and how I adapt to the space with all those conditions a female body experienced during the life and I just really admired this chutzpah of those sex workers. I just thought, okay, they're just standing there no matter what. And I find myself until now, not so much since I've done that project, but still kind of a bit uncomfortable in public space when I don't seem to have a purpose so, meaning waiting for somebody who is late or aren't early. So, this condition is seems to be very, very deep that me as a female body needs some kind of excuse that I feel the urge to communicate with my environment why I have this or the allowance to actually just hang out here. So, that probably the experience also share others. You wait for somebody you look way more often on your watch than necessary for example or you're doing weird gestures of waiting whatever that might be yeah I just couldn't drop this observation and that led me to invite several performers in different cities female performers and female with a sternchen with a little star at the end to ask them if they would be willing to first of all find a spot they would like to occupy for a certain amount of time and most importantly, just occupy it with their presence without big gestures or anything, without a banner, just by being there with no purpose. And I did that in Berlin, Chicago, Sheffield, Montreal. And like I said, it's an ongoing project. Yeah, it's tickling a lot of other Interesting side topics, I think. One of them, that's also why this project is a tiny bit on hold, is, for example, what defines a female body? This is where it gets tricky already. So what those different performers experience, which is quite interesting for me, and which united them more or less, everybody experienced it as pretty uncomfortable for different reasons. Either the neighborhood they on purpose chose for example, in Chicago was a neighborhood where you actually don't walk. particular as a female connoted body, you just don't walk there because it's dangerous. Way less kind of exciting, but very common, uncomfortable feelings were caused by the fact you just, for some reason, even if you're standing in the middle of the pavement, you seem to be un- invisible and people literally run you over. Even when you kind of, you know, try to really whatever it takes claiming the space and yeah so that kind of of course encouraged me to continue because I thought I I kind of tapped on something there there's something something is there uh, that that needs to be uh, further explored of course I did also a tiny bit of research and uh, there's for example a book written that is called the invisible female flaneur which is a book written about the absence of the figure of the female flaneur in French literature in the 19th century. And why that is, and of course, one of the theses is, in a patriarchal society, you just can't allow yourself being that present and taking that much space. I mean, we we all know from experience in public transport or in any urban condition and spaces and settings that it seems to be certainly easier, which makes totally sense, for male red bodies to just own space. And of course, for women, it's still not of course, but it's it's kind of actually quite sad uh, that there's a book written from the 19th century and we write the year 2020, and things haven't really changed that drastically. Why this project is a bit on hold is also that I still haven't figured out how to kind of leave the so-called Eurocentric or Western world, mainly the Western art world as well. And of course, inviting other performer, performers from, from elsewhere to participate in that project, because that puts everybody in a very awkward situation. So first of all, what is what would be a different cultural context. <laughs> this is where it starts already. Just the word different is actually kind of unbearable in that context. And also we have to acknowledge that societies in, in other contexts are also working different. And so we have, we have the gender dimension, we have a cultural dimension, and all the politics that are woven around it make it not that easy to endlessly continue that project. And I'm... I'm very very happy and uh, glad to now be able to introduce this project and make you all kind of maybe think about it and collectively and push it on a bit. So yeah, let's push it on and um, I would very much like to invite you today to participate in some kind of particular or special format I developed for this audio walk. I rewrote the instructions and I would just, yeah, communicate those with you now. Please listen carefully. So first of all, you should find yourself a spot in the nearest surrounding that you would like to claim for a short moment of time. And once you spotted something out, then please move to that place And very important, make sure that you will be safe during your performance of occupation. For example, don't get run over by a car. If you found your spot, now try to arrive. Stay comfortable. And if it's difficult for you to stand up, of course you can also sit down. Have a look around and feel your body and its present in this new environment. And again, please, try to arrive. Now, if you're ready, start squatting the spot. Squat the place with your presence and find the posture that represents your claim. And those gestures or the gesture doesn't have to be big. Try to avoid to be read as somebody who's waiting. So don't look at your phone or your watch. There will be a sound signal that lets you know when this exercise is starting and when it's over. And still, concentrate on your posture of claiming. During your occupation, give yourself room for thoughts and feelings. Try to figure out what's different to just waiting somewhere. How do people react? Is it difficult to claim that space? Maybe even uncomfortable? Well, that's it. I hope you enjoy this experience.
0: How do you feel? Start moving again when you're ready. Are you comfortable moving around here? We want you to feel
1: safe wherever you are. Let's see if you can find some place that helps you with that.
0: What would such a space feel like? Or maybe it's not a space, but a situation, a practice, a way of being. Do you know of a space that makes you feel accepted, where you can be
1: without fear or judgment? A space where you can feel yourself? Have you been there? Focus on yourself. Look at your arms, your fingertips. Where would you feel good out here, all of you? If you found a space that feels safe, do whatever you like. Listen with us to this work called "Amanzi" by Mandla. She made this piece about Berlin and how she felt in it.
3: Amanza ayabila Niyashuba ugu ntanta peso Ugu amaza ugu Uchikuzoba lula ganjaan Izo mondla nini Amansi Asindayo Amansi Asindayo
4: Taken from my journal, written during the first time I was in Berlin. Last night I had the worst panic attack I've had all my life. I've had plenty before and I usually know what to do, how to keep calm and how to breathe. Last night was really, really something else. I was really terrified. I didn't know who to call. I had no one to call. It was really scary. I'm writing these down cause I don't know where else to put them. I've been in Berlin for about a week and I've been having the most tumultuous time. Being queer and invisible is something that's so hard to navigate even in a more seemingly open place like Berlin. No one understands how hard it is for us to breathe. How hard it is for us to wake up and exist. To be ourselves, when the whole world is telling us not to. I've had some of the worst discriminative encounters in this town in comparison to anywhere else I've been, so far. From being pushed, shoved, kicked, followed, spat on, physically and mentally harassed, last night it really dawned on me that this is the rest of my life and this is how it's going to be. That was tough to realize. I was mad, I felt angry, I felt frustrated, and I felt robbed, robbed of some of the simple pleasures in life like walking down a road and not being slurred at. I am so mad, my sis counterparts don't have to go through this, ever. Safety in who you are is nothing they'd ever have to second-guess. I'm sorry if this sounds naive, because I understand the gravity of my identity in the world we live in and the spaces we're provided with. I just feel like being in Berlin has really opened up my eyes to what my life is going to be from now on. And this is truly the world we live in. As this dawned on me it got harder and harder and harder for me to breathe. I had no one to call. It's gonna get harder from here on out, I know. I'm probably never going to be able to breathe as easily or as freely as I've felt before because the weight of my identity will continuously press on my lungs while I fight to stay visible and stay safe. I hope everyone is doing okay, and will continue to be okay until we are 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 until we are
1: Take a deep breath. Do you have spaces where you can be yourself freely? Let's take another moment, listen to the children playing.
0: Let's find a new space to discover.
1: We're outside on the sidewalk, like so many other times before. How do you usually move through public space when you want to get somewhere?
0: Do you hurry? Do you rush between destinations? We do,
1: oftentimes. So now we'd like to invite you to do the opposite, and to move with us
0: as slowly as you can. We have a couple of minutes. This is time that we can use to focus on the space between our footsteps, to look for details that we might
1: miss otherwise. It's not important where we arrived at the end.
0: Let's just start moving, but very slowly. And let's
1: observe what's happening around us as we approach Zoe Partington and Joss Poys in London. They'll tell us about how they explore new ways of working in architecture education and practice, and how different bodies inform their teaching.
2: Hello. Hi, I'm
5: Hi.
6: I managed to, uh, Zoe
5: should be up- Over ten years ago we set up something that at that time was called um, Architecture Inside Out with the idea that disability access and inclusion were still really badly dealt with within architectural education and practice and that by using the creativity of disabled artists we could really
7: provoke new ways of working. Able-bodied people can survive in any terrain in a way so actually as a designer um, if you create not a very good design, non-disabled people can still use that building and that space. They might not like it, but you're definitely excluding disabled people. And you should be thinking about you know the six percent, the eight percent, the ten percent, because if you get that right and you work to make sure that those people can access it, then it will work for everybody, and it would actually be better for everybody. It is about this everyday thing, you know, getting to the shops, catching the train, the bus, the, you know, walking around the corner, going to the pub, you know, going out clubbing, doing all these things that everybody else does really. And I've just been developing training, um, it was museum moderators really and people that were working in museums to think how disabled people coming into the museum environment might work in different ways. So I started to look at how they uh, as a training exercise really about them being different characters. And those characters, not necessarily being disabled people, but being somebody that was carrying very heavy shopping, somebody walking through the building incredibly slowly, people moving very fast, people hopping, people sliding along the floor. And the one that seems to work really well is people moving through the building very slowly. So people start to actually engage with the space a lot more. They begin to understand what's not working in that space they begin to understand that you might be left out from the group because you can't move as fast as everybody else. So it, it just starts a whole new conversation from thinking how these things don't work to thinking, actually, I I've, rather than rushing through the space, I've begun to see that textures or the smells or the environment, There's things that are really interesting here, observing other people's quite interesting, or there are places to sit down that may have not been designed into the building, but actually we could design more in quite interesting ways to make the building more um, better for everybody really. It's also about people realising that disabled people aren't just wheelchair users, there's a huge spectrum of disabled people um, with different impairments and, and that means more people in society have access and need to make sure that it's right really. just
5: to reiterate that point about... Because it's very easy for people just to want to put disabled people in these different functional categories. It's like, this is what you need if you use a wheelchair, or this is what you need if you're blind, or this is what you need if you're autistic. And by doing these kinds of activities, these kind of character scenarios, you're not performing any of those... You're not performing a category, Mm. but you're performing a set of... A way of being in the world, which is... Mm. um, Connects to a whole range of of impairments, and connects to um, the enjoyment of difference. Part of the thing about the uh, the disorderly architecture project is to try and think of ways. If you if you argue that you should start from difference rather than add difference on at the end as a kind of artificial thing, yeah, okay. is what does that mean in terms of the kinds of teaching that you do, the kinds of activities that you do, the workshops, how it affects how mm-hmm. people literally learn the subject. Again, not just you need to know this about disabled people, but how you think about the world and, and mm-hmm. your place and the place of other people in it. Um, and some of the language that I use, again, from disability studies is around the idea of fitting and misfitting, mm-hmm. rather than you know able-bodied and disabled, that different sorts of mm-hmm. environments... Act in different ways, in different contexts. It's always relational. It's always about who you're with, what the space is like, mm. what the attitudes are like. All those things come together in a relational way to disable or enable particular groups of people and not others. If you think about misfitting as a very creative thing, if you're designing to enable people not to misfit, then that's that's a real creative generator. That's mm. not a problem. That's not a kind of leftover. It's what you start from. Yeah. So you don't, you don't get into this numbers game like it's not very important because there aren't many people who use a wheelchair. Mm. You, you get into what's the neuro and biodiversity, the richness of it, the value of it. I think that what we do is, is a form of feminist practice, but I don't think that's a way we ever talk about it. And that's partly because it's almost like you can go beyond some of the things that we got very caught up in in the 70s and the 80s. The things that were really important were to being able to just work out what it meant to say that space was gendered or racialised or queered or, you know, all those things, or disabling. You know, there was a kind of interest in that. But I think there's been some really fantastic stuff by contemporary disability studies scholars and disabled activists and artists, which is around the idea that, that we're all after the same thing. It is all about, you know, the expression is transformative, social, spatial and material justice. And the notion of justice rather than access and inclusion, for me, is a really powerful one. What you have to do in order to get there is exactly what Zoe was talking about, I think, which is about what are the everyday practices and spaces and relationships that make things gendered or make them uh, discriminate against particular people, dis- disable particular people, and that—that's across the board. You know, you can't just say, "Oh, well, women." You know, certain things will happen to certain sorts of women to do with their place in society. But once you start cross-cutting it with impairment, with sexuality, with race, it's kind of—it feels to me like it's better to look at the practices and see what they're doing to all of us.
1: If you like, you can move at your own pace again.
0: If you enjoy moving slow, just keep doing that. Are you in an open space? A public square? A place where
1: people are passing by? A place where people can gather? Imagine this space. It's large and it's full of people. In fact, it's packed. It's warm. And yours is one body breathing among others.
8: It's eight of March again. I'm meeting a friend with my mother on the Warschau Brucke in Berlin. The day before, we were still working together on some posters. Women with green scarves have already gathered on the street. The green scarf is a symbol of the feminist movement in Argentina. Every year, on the International Women's Day, I prepare to go out into the streets. Since two years I have been going to the demonstration organized by the International Feminist Alliance in Berlin. It is a space for only women, lesbians, inter, non-binary and trans people. I perceive the space as an intersectional space, where the struggles of migrant refugee women, women of the diaspora, black, indigenous and of color, sex workers and other marginalized groups are being recognized. This year the demonstration started with the performance of Las Desis and ended at the women's prison in Lichtenberg. Un Violador en tu Camino, also known as The Rapist's You, is a performance piece created by the Chilean Feminist Collective Las Tesis, formed by Daphne Valdez, Sibila Sotomayor, Lea Cáceres, and Paula Cometa. performance, originally a theater piece, denounces not only violence against women and feminine identities, but also the complicity of the state. According to the collective, the police, the judges and the state are partly to be blamed for feminicides, rape and violent disappearances. In an interview they described the performance as an attempt to translate feminist theory into practice through visual and performative formats. It was performed on the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women on the 25th of November in 2019. After videos of the performance went viral, it has been performed not only in Latin America but also other countries over the world.
3: ¡Impunidad para el asesino!
8: A veces me siento dividida entre dos mundos, aquí donde vivo y allá donde nací. Sometimes I no me siento between between two words. Ni allá. here where I live and there where I was born. I feel neither from here nor from there. Living on borders and in margins, keeping intact one's shifting and multiple identity, as Gloria Anzaldua writes in her book Borderlands, is not always easy. It is like trying to swim in a new element, an alien element. As I walk in the Latinx block, it always feels surreal to be on the street. It is like having the feeling of leaving Berlin for a day. It is incredible to have a space where I can be as loud as I want in my mother tongue. Taking so much space as a migrant woman of color together with others is really empowering. We sing, we scream, we dance, we run. Even though the struggles why we go out are far from being resolved, I find it very strengthening for me to be on the street at this moment. Resistencia, Resistencia, Resistencia is a practice used by student movements in Latin America during demonstrations. Say the word four times, crouching down lower and lower as you say it. By the third time you say it, you're almost on the ground. Then, With all the power of those four words, you run. If you want, you can try it now.
1: You're looking for a place to rest. Is there a park nearby? Do you see any green near you or a piece of nature? Move in that direction. Is that space accessible to you and can you take a rest there? If so, go and make yourself comfortable. Sound from the Un Thai Toads Collective will now tell you the story of a park in Berlin where a community of Thai women gather during the weekends for gambling, cooking, chatting, exchanging advice. Why are those practices of public space important, and especially so for minorities? What did you find? A park? A lawn? A bush? Maybe just a distant plant in a window?
6: I want to just talk about migrant space, usually grassroots initiated by migrants that later come to be gentrified and um, actually resold for, like, you know, until you, you take the core out and you resell the place. Um, and it's like, oh, this is the legendary migrant, colorful place and gentrified. Formerly, it's called Poison Park. It's a green park area at the Fairbeliner Platz in Wilmersdorf. And usually, b- before Corona time, there were a lot of sort of Thai foods stands um, or vendors um, selling not just Thai food but also many variants of quote-unquote Asian foods there and it's very kind of unplannable sometimes there are a lot of them sometimes they are not on one hand you know you have the Thai migrants group and you can divide this group into kind of two or three in all the aspects so like one group would be the the migrant Thai migrants who don't have um, what do you call it, give up a shine. Basically, they have no access to entrepreneurship and business um, possibilities. They And they also put in a lower tax class or blah, blah, So they're not allowed to earn that much. But they also want their income because um, that means, you know, financial freedom. So that means they really need a place where they can play with the gray area of not... Not whatever you know, so that's a group that I really feel like I care because we need the space for them. Second group is people who also Thai migrants who at some point found their business partner and they have restaurants and Thai Park selling is sort of kind of their side project thing, but also still produce a lot of it's not just income but also they like meet friends and and it's also necessary for them to import ingredients and shipping and everything. It involves a lot of this migrant organization you can do it with your friends it's cheaper and there are also like some you know some vendors or like brazilians or like cambodians um vietnamese that they know each other with the thai very well and they drink beer together um there's also a lot of um groups of people who regularly go there who are not necessarily quote-unquote part of the thais but but you know like um, the German husbands or just the German neighbors or some sort of other people of colors who just happen to live around there and they find it cute and cute yeah and then other it was just uh, visitors students researchers artists including us and um, none of us belong to this sort of people who initiated this and we were born in the time of you know 80s so we, we were born exactly when things start to move so we just sort of trying to convey some message. I mean, in the beginning, I was also kind of not seeing the, the complexities and, and things underneath, underneath the surface. And I was just seeing it more like kind of, oh, what a nice thing that we can have like a, kind of really spicy or sometimes rare stuff to eat. And um, until actually, un- until I started um, to be involved in this project that, that I it got into me that there's something so much more in that
3: yeah
6: um before the wall came down you didn't need to have visa to come here so you can stay here for 3 months so so a lot of people came and started on business both males and females um and then and then like after the wall um you know, the, the whole structure changed. You could not stay longer, th- I mean, you basically need visa. But also people who lived there before the war came down, they need to, you know, they need to get through a certain process to become a proper citizen. And one of the main options is to marry someone. It's what some people call a femini- feminization of migration. A lot of males who live here have to move back to their countries because they could not find anybody to marry or they married somewhere else and it was it w- there were many females who got some German husbands that that kind of led to you know um, the groups of Thai migrants here which I would not say that all of them are from that and um, actually I've talked to some and they were they said that they were involved in such a process and it's nothing that we should you know we should not stigmatize this this was it was this is this. but they also you know they just met their friends and um, I guess that was sort of kind of the beginning-ish of the what to be called Thai Park that they just met their friends and gambled and exchanged foods and um, it was really about that like they were just sort of hanging out in the park and then more and more people came yeah during the 90s uh, they, it was it was transformed actually by by the media kind of when when some people start to realize that oh there's so many foods sold and be exchanged here so it kind of became you know sort of this like secret insights for people who visit West Berlin, and then it got boom in 2000-ish, and then then it became sort of this commercial type part that we come to know now. In the end, you know, as a migrant you um, the difference is also that like, um, you, know, you, don't, you don't necessarily speak the language and especially you don't know all the laws in German and stuff, so you always need someone to give you advice. And um, what happened was also they create, it was some sort of a separation that migrants, not just Thai, but many migrants of color lack access to um, counseling as my advices. So they relied on each other basically. Even after the wall came down, someone to advise them, or even to find job opportunities, because also Thai restaurants started opening also after the wall, a bit before the wall. And so you know they exchanged, and they also kind of they op- also operated a lot of financial opportunities. It was just that I think the uh, I think the point was that the aspects of food came to over how you call overshadow these. Use of the park, I think at the end of nineties or two thousand ish actually, but before that it was never really properly about food like in yeah. on the priority yeah it's also kind of indirect um space occupation in a way because um then you know the name the name of the place is called poison Park, and this park was used. And I just discovered it was used also during the Nazi time and it was originally used for other purposes in the past, um, way before Thai migration started. Like we uh, also have some postcards from the park, um, back in nineteen ten or something. And it's really interesting how how the urban atmospheres changed. There was you no know, way so many trees and also like during Nazi time they destroyed most of the trees and they put like um, you know, it's called national stones, some stein there, and some some sculptures of Greek perfect body wrestling around, and all of these were destroyed after the war. Like, I think it's also you know the use of space changed over time, and what previously was perceived as nationalistic to something like migrant days, and it's kind of subversive in a way. Yeah, and then during Corona time, that like you know the food market aspect kind of faded off and actually there were really like a proper gathering just to meet and gamble and talk to each other and i think that's kind of nice but we also learn from that in a sense that you know corona time maybe really posed a big question what the space means for people and i think this this is precisely the point but um, but yeah, so it's something that you know sort of parallelly goes between sort of commercialized aspect and uh, the small, quiet, almost a little bit insider stuff that uh, that you know stays. And I also have to say that um, it's not just the ties only; it's also like the other whatever diasporic migrants group who who gather and meet there, and not necessarily for its sort of. You know, not necessary for commercialized aspect. I mean, they just meet to meet friends. They just meet to exchange advices, and they have some food next to them. And I think it's also very important that you know these, even other migrants, not just Thai. They also need sort of space where they feel free to talk with their friends in their language and exchange what they think about the world. So so they come, become something more important, not just to Thais but also to other.
1: Look around. What are people doing in your surroundings? Is there anyone? Is there a group of people? What do they look like? How do they move? Are they sitting or are they standing? Are there options to rest? Are there shaded areas? This has been a quiet journey, and at some point, we all need to relieve ourselves. It's easier for some bodies than it is for others. Did you see someone who might have a hard time finding appropriate bathrooms?
3: And she the song to the city.
1: Did you see any public restrooms? Do you recall having seen someone peeing?
3: And it goes like this.
1: Listen to how Gina is tackling the issue of clean and safe bathrooms.
9: Hi, my name is Gina and I am the co-founder and CEO of LAPI. I moved to Copenhagen in 2015, where I started going to festivals. I discovered the festivals Distortion and Roskill Festival. Distortion takes place in the streets of Copenhagen. There, I was very surprised by seeing so many young women peeing in the streets. They were helping each other, holding hands, making it easier to expose themselves, trying to laugh about the situation. But they had no choice. I walked into the festival and got to party a bit. Then I understood. I had to pee and there was nowhere to go. A few smelly closed toilet cabins with endless lines or between two cars. Later on, at Roskilde Festival, I went there for a few days and I was just sick of how uncomfortable you are when you just need to pee. Always these known hygienic, dark closed toilet cabins. Or the other solution there is to just pee by the fence. For sure more exposed, but more hygienic. There at Roskilde, I started thinking that I wished I could just go somewhere made only for pee and where you don't have to touch anything. A urinal. I thought the urinal sounds like the most luxurious thing in the world in this environment. Just like men, they have it all over the place. It's actually never a problem for men to pee. And at that moment, it was actually hard to understand how come there hasn't been a solution for women yet. During the worksite and the festival, I could not stand the peeing situation anymore. We had to do something about it. We observed the most popular product for men for outdoor events, which is a perfectly simple product, industrialized, which exists all over the world. And we decided to make the female version of it. That meant that we looked into how it was manufactured, cleaned, transported and maintained. So the organizations integrating our product, which are festivals, events, also marathons, uh, would not wonder how to handle it. Our product would be ready to fit into the already existing event industry and also the portable toilet industry. Because at the end, of course, we have to make a urinal that fits women, but the people that are gonna handle, clean, and transport the the product are not the women. It is the festival organization or events organization and portable toilet companies. We developed the product with advices from a large festival, a large rental company, the manufacturer, and plenty of women. From the top, it looks like a fidget spinner. It allows three women to pee at the same time. La pee has no door and no lock, and this is what makes it so efficient. No one is gonna go and do anything else than pee. No one is gonna spend an extra minute on their phone or doing anything else that could generate a line. That That is really why it's efficient. That's kind of the key of our product. You step up two steps and that makes you able to look around, but no one can look in from outside. It is a touch-free squatting urinal, which also gives a lot of hygiene because it's auto-ventilated. You don't touch anything. You can wash your hands. We have place some uh, alcohol gel dispenser also. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the most hygienic uh, product at an event. You go in a lapis, you pee, and you are done. It's as simple as that. In 2019, our product was out as the solution and distributed in large numbers to Distortion, Roskilde Festival and other events. How emotional is it to see the product you design in large numbers at the festival that you were for the first time at? Very quickly, we started selling our product internationally. Women love it. We get constantly thankful messages on our communication platforms. That we never expected. We never expected that women would start posting selfies of themselves in LAP on their Instagram accounts. That was beyond everything we expected. That was an amazing feeling. We could see that they were so happy and so proud to be able to finally pee decently. We even have friends that send us some screenshot of women's Tinder profile where they're using their picture in LAP. How crazy is that? Lapi has a strong pink color. It's a color of power. It's the color of our brain. It's the color that makes, I think, also women take pictures of it. Or anyone. It just looks cool. Instead of going to a dark corner like often in events, here it is very visible, which makes it also more safe. If something goes wrong, it will be noticed right away. Pink is an iconic color and makes la pee recognizable right away and from far away. We want women to be able to spot from quite a distance a safe, hygienic and efficient place to pee.
0: how do you feel now how does your body feel
1: what are the sounds of our environments do they harm us empower us guide us For Femmark, these stories are the beginning of a new habit of listening. It is an ongoing attention to the stories of our environments through collecting their sounds. By listening as we move through space, we can collectively practice the making of those spaces and emancipatory experiences in them. Thank you for moving with us.